Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If you, anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much today, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, Mantle Cell Lymphoma Treatment Update, and this is part one of Living with Mantle Cell Lymphoma. And uh, today's program is supported by Beijing and Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. I'd like to thank them for their support of this program today. Um, and we have many people on the program today. Um, we have over 201 participants on the call today from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Austria, Cameroon, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, Malaysia, Poland, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well, and it's really a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Um, and uh, before I introduce our first speaker, I just would like to ask you a few questions. It'll take about two minutes. Um, and for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions, and you'll also be able to uh, rate the questions um, in terms of their questions you can just rate. Um, and so, and we appreciate you doing this because um, this allows us to best tailor the programs to meet your needs. So it will help us as we plan programs uh, going, going forward. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand emerging treatment approaches for mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand treatment options for newly diagnosed mantle cell lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, I understand treatment options for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. I understand how to manage treatment side effects, discomfort and quality of life concerns with mantle cell lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The last question is, I understand the role of clinical trials for mantle cell lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And again, I want to thank you all for participating in these questions and really helping us as we plan programs going forward. Um, and now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ajay Gopal. And Dr. Gopal is Professor, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutch, Professor, Medical Oncology Division, University of Washington School of Medicine, Director of Clinical Research, Hematology, Malignancies, Hematology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Gopal will be addressing overview of mantle cell lymphoma, diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, treatment options for newly diagnosed, the important role of clinical trials, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and communicating with the healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gopal. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Messner, and it's a pleasure uh, for me to be able to get together again with my colleagues, Drs. Messner and Haberman, uh, to talk about uh, something that I and we are all very interested in, how to better the lives of those who suffer uh, with lymphoma. Um, I'm going to start by talking a little bit about uh, overall overview of mantle cell lymphoma um, and then I'll touch on some of how we approach this in the setting of COVID-19 uh, before I move to the other topics. 
so mantle cell lymphoma is like other lymphomas. It's derived from uh, white blood cells, the lymphocytes. And I think, as many of you probably know, uh, these can be divided broadly into B cells, T cells, and natural killer cells. And most lymphomas are derived from B cells. So this is a B cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But it is a bit of an unusual kind of lymphoma. It's relatively uncommon as lymphomas go. It makes up about five or so percent of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, and it has an interesting uh, male to female uh, uh, ratio. It's much more common in males uh, than females, and we don't really understand why. Uh, now that said, um, <clears throat> I certainly have, uh, unfortunately, many female patients uh, who have uh, been diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, it also has an interesting uh, predilection for the gastrointestinal tract and really kind of the whole uh, aerodigestive tract, as we call it, all the way from uh, one end to the other, uh, lips uh, to the other end. <clears throat> and uh, sometimes these are diagnosed just when people get their screening colonoscopy, screening for colon cancer, a polyp is found, uh, and uh, on, lo and behold, under the microscope, the pathologist says this is not a uh, early colon cancer, uh, it's actually a mantle cell lymphoma, and patients can be very asymptomatic uh, without any issues uh, going on uh, regarding the mantle, their mantle cell lymphoma. And I think this is an important feature of mantle cell lymphoma is that Though we call this group of diseases mantle cell lymphoma, they can behave very differently from a very indolent, completely asymptomatic, incidentally found situation to a very rapidly progressive, uh, fast-growing uh, disease. Sometimes mantle cell lymphoma can also present more like a leukemia with an elevated white blood cell count and no, uh, in, no lumps or bumps or enlarged lymph nodes. So, there's really a huge spectrum uh, regarding mantle cell lymphoma about how these things show up. And that does play into our treatment uh, strategies, which I'll touch on. How do you make the diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma? Well, you really wanna have a good pathologist or a hematopathologist look under the microscope and do these special tests looking for something called cyclin D1 uh, and there's specific other proteins that are associated with mantle cell lymphoma such as CD5, uh, SOX11 is another one. Uh, that's often associated with mantle cell lymphoma. And then there are a couple of things that we look for in terms of uh, uh, prognosis. Uh, there's something called KI67, which is basically a measure of how rapidly the cells are dividing under the microscope. And that's also been associated, as you can imagine, more rapidly dividing uh, usually means a more aggressive mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, and then there's also a mutation uh, in a gene called TP53, uh, which if that occurs, often uh, suggests that it might be a tougher to treat uh, mantle cell lymphoma. So we look at that, we get this information, we do something called the Mantle Cell Lymphoma International Prognostic Index, which is a way we can try to guesstimate as imperfect, uh, but uh, how, how uh, tough this uh, disease might be. Um, and then there's another feature that we can see under the microscope to say whether it's this blastoid subtype, which also portends a, a faster growing. Luckily, these are rare. Um, staging can include a PET CT scan. Uh, sometimes can do a bone marrow biopsy, but I think the reality of mantle cell lymphoma is because it's a blood cancer, it's typically in multiple locations as these cells can move around the body uh, when, it's, uh, when it's diagnosed. Um, so how does COVID-19 play into this? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily specific to mantle cell lymphoma, but as I mentioned, um, there can be a spectrum in how uh, these things show up. And typically when somebody's newly diagnosed, the first thing I wanna do is make sure they're fully vaccinated uh, because we really wanna get the vaccine start, vaccines started um, before we start any therapy that might prevent a, an immune response to the vaccine. So we really emphasize, I think we all do, regardless of whether you have lymphoma diagnosis, is to get vaccinated. But it's particularly important uh, for those that are gonna undergo treatment that could impact how well vaccines work. So get the vaccine started um, and uh, of course, uh, be uh, careful uh, relative to uh, 
what the prevalence is in your area and what the re recommendations for uh, masking and such. Um, I'm going to just turn now a little bit to options for newly diagnosed mantle cell lymphoma. So as I'd mentioned, uh, there's a huge spectrum in how mantle cell lymphoma presents or shows up. And what this leads to is really the first question is, do we need to treat immediately or can we observe? And in particular, in situations where it might just be a slightly elevated white blood cell count or an incidentally found polyp on colonoscopy with no symptoms, uh, there are data to suggest that there's no detriment to observing. So there are the first question is, do we need to treat or can we observe? Uh, and that's really, you know, a long discussion with your uh, physician about what the right next step is. But we often use what's happening with blood counts and labs and how are people feeling and how big the various lumps might be and what we might be concerned about if they got bigger uh, to make that uh, decision. So if treatment is uh, decided upon, then the next major question uh, often is, are we going to use an intensive chemotherapy-based approach with the plan to do something called an autologous stem cell transplant um, afterwards to try to give an initial long remission? Uh, this approach has been shown to extend remissions, but it's also a pretty intensive approach. So again, this has to be individualized with your uh, physician. So uh, we, for, we sort of asked the question is, are we, is it a transplant intent strategy or is it not a transplant intent strategy? And that has to do often with uh, what patient, patient preferences as well as any other uh, medical, medical conditions one might have. The kinds of regimens that we use when someone is going to transplant vary, uh, but often there are things like uh, VR cap is one, uh, bendamustine rituximab alternating with high dose cytarabine and rituximab, or RCHOP alternating with high dose cytarabine. Uh, these are different kinds of regimens where we try to get folks into remission. Um, a non transplant strategy might use similar regimens, uh, but without a transplant at the end, so something like bendamustine rituximab. Um, or uh, VR cap, or these are different treatment regimens that we can use to get folks into remission. Um, another strategy which is being investigated is whether or not it's uh, beneficial to use these drugs called Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors as part of the first-line therapy. Uh, and I think that's still a question and not an answer, but in select patients that where chemotherapy may not be appropriate outside of a trial that, that could be considered. Um, the other point I would like to make is that there have been uh, at least two prospective trials as well as retrospective data suggesting that adding rituximab maintenance whether it's after initial chemotherapy or after a stem cell transplant, does improve outcomes. So this is really the only uh, lymphoma uh, where survival is better if you get rituximab maintenance. And uh, that's something that we strongly consider uh, where, where appropriate uh, in, uh, after initial treatment for mantle cell lymphoma. So now I'm just going to talk briefly about the role of clinical trials. Uh, so I think the most important role of clinical trials is how do we make things better for folks with mantle cell lymphoma? And everything that I mentioned to you was really learned from clinical trials, courageous patients and their families participating in these trials to advance the field in mantle cell lymphoma. So these trials can advance the field. They also in, can provide potential benefit to the participant uh, that is uh, enrolling in the trial. Um, and just to um, um, mention the kinds of trials, so typically for first or second tight line of therapy, these trials are not going to deviate far from standard of care. It'll often be comparing one standard to another or one standard versus with a standard plus some other medicine. Um, and I think the question I get asked a lot is, is somebody gonna, just going to get a placebo? Now, this is almost uh, unheard of in oncology trials. Uh, there, is tip, there is usually a therapeutic standard uh, where something might be added to. So I, I think that's really not a worry, an important question to ask, but not a worry uh, for these types of trials. Um, and then as someone may need further lines of therapy, which uh, 
uh, Dr. Haberman will talk about, clinical trials can introduce new treatments that, you, that one may not have access to uh, otherwise. So I'm going to just round out things in touching on the role of telehealth and telemedicine in communicating with your healthcare team. I think all of us have realized that our approach to taking care of patients has dramatically changed uh, because of the pandemic. And uh, what telehealth can obviously do is it reduces the need for travel. It allows particularly a consultation type visit uh, to happen uh, without uh, the need to get in a car or a plane or a bus. Um, and also reduces the risk of contact if there are uh, high rates of uh, COVID-19 uh, occurring. However, I think what it doesn't do is it, it doesn't give you that uh, real appreciation, at least from a physician's perspective, of how fit a patient may be in terms of tolerating therapy. And as I mentioned, a big question is, is transplant the right therapy for someone? So I think you know, that, that decision is often best made in an in-person visit to really delve deep into how healthy someone is and what other, how their life might be impacted by other medical conditions. Of course, you can't really do lab draws through the, uh, the video. Um, and uh, I, so I think, it, you know, telehealth does play a role, but doesn't replace in all circumstances the in-person visit. Often this is good for folks that are on oral therapies uh, because you don't need to come in and get infusion, so telehealth can be useful. And I think um, what we've sort of seen in the U.S. Uh, is that telehealth got rapidly expanded during the pandemic, but now many states are rolling back these abil the ability to do telehealth across state lines. And I would be curious to hear what my colleague, Dr. Haberman, might say about this, but I, I, I would appeal uh, to uh, the U.S. public really to, to, to ask their representatives uh, uh, to um, allow telehealth because it was a wonderful thing that I could do telehealth with patients in Alaska and Idaho uh, and all these various states in our region uh, with really no restrictions, and now I no longer can because the ability to do telehealth across state lines has been restricted again. Um, so I think from a patient's perspective, I would advocate that patients uh, should be able to see any doctor uh, that they choose. Um, so uh, I will uh, wrap it up there uh, with my uh, uh, section. Uh, I think it's a, it's a very exciting time for mantle cell lymphoma uh, treatment because we have lots of new options. I think the challenge we're facing is out of lots of much better choices than we had, which one may be the best uh, and I look forward to seeing results of some of these large studies that are still pending in terms of choosing uh, best op the best option uh, for my uh, newly diagnosed patients. Uh, so with that, I'll turn the microphone back over to Dr. Messiner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gopal. That was really wonderful and outstanding way to start the program and set the context for today's program. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman, and Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And uh, Dr. Haberman will be addressing treatment options for relapsed refractory disease, emerging treatment approaches, key questions to ask your healthcare team, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a real privilege to be here with you, your team, Dr. Ajay Gopal, and all of the attendees from over eight countries, and to speak on current perspectives of relapse refractory disease and the other topics that I was assigned. My perspectives come from the following. I've been a faculty member in Mayo Clinic Lymphoma Clinic since 1985. The Lymphoma Research Foundation has convened a meeting on mantle cell lymphoma since 2004. There recently was one in April of 2021. I'm a member of the NCCN Guideline Committee, and uh, as Dr. Gopal does, we keep up with a lot of things that are going on. There are two major perspectives uh, that are rapidly emerging with regard to emerging treatments in mantle cell lymphoma and their risk factors and then key overall treatment strategies. With regard to the risk factors, the European Mantle Cell Network 
has identified that uh, they look at things now as two-thirds of patients with classic mantle cell lymphoma, nodal or extranodal, and then a leukemic phase without risk factors, and about a third have risk factors. And uh, as Dr. Gopal has mentioned, these include a TP53, either mutation or by immunohistochemistry, an elevated KI67 over 30%, and then a blastoid or pleomorphic morphology. And if you have zero, one, or two, or three of these, it really influences the the outcome. The major questions and approaches on the treatment strategies are understudied in it, it studies in different trials. The role of the chemotherapy-free approach is really under has been underway over the last decade, and includes the Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors or BTK inhibitors with or without rituximab and venetoclax. CAR T-cell therapy, and now we have the bispecific antibodies also. This has really been a fascinating time in the history of mantle cell lymphoma. And for those of us that started a few years back, uh, not many years ago, the median survival was three years with this disease, and this has changed dramatically over time. In 2016, our group presented an abstract at the American Society of Clinical Oncology for the Mayo Clinic Lymphoma Database. And patients who were enrolled on clinical trials versus not uh, that were eligible uh, actually had an improved overall survival and two-year overall survival. Combined therapies came along around 2012, bendamustine with the addition to rituximab after other therapies and very high response rates in the 80% raised, with about half of them being complete remissions. Then single-agent studies have led to the development of new interventions and approaches in relapse refractory disease. The first was bortezomib to come along and be FDA-approved by our regulatory bodies in our country. I had the privilege of being the first author of the first report on lenalidomide and relapsed refractory mantle cell in 2009, which eventually became FDA-approved, and the addition of rituximab to that doubled the response rates. But what really changed the world were the BTK inhibitors of brutinib. This was approved by regulatory authorities in our country and in other countries, with overall response rates in the 70% range. There were somewhat unanticipated toxicities to this class of drugs, which included hemorrhage in 7.3%, natrial fibrillation in 5.9%. Imagine now we have an oral drug as opposed to a peripheral blood stem cell transplant. This drug then was followed by other drugs in its class. Icalabrutinib had higher response rates in a published trial in 2017 with no atrial fibrillation, but about 23% of patients having some bleeding. Xanabrutinib has come along. And this group of drugs overall are more important, are more effective for treating relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma when used as earlier lines of therapy. These different uh, BTK inhibitors, along with Xanabrutinib, are under clinical trials either in combination or alone. And now, Pertubrutinib, a selective and reversible BTK inhibitor, is now under evaluation. After these drugs, venetoclax came along. And venetoclax is an oral BCL2 inhibitor, and this now is in clinical trials in a phase three sympatical trial comparing venetoclax alone with venetoclax plus a brutinib. The real, again, practice changing therapeutic approach is CAR T-cell therapy, which is now FDA-approved in, by, by our regulatory body since 2021 in the United States. The, this re, came about as the result of the Zuma-2 trial of, of brexacabdogene autolusil, and this resulted in complete remission rates in 59% of patients and a quarter of patients partial remissions, and these have been durable. Lysocabdogen Lysocabdogene miralusil, not FDA approved, has a high complete remission rate also. We've known along since the previous decade, almost 20, 15, 20 years, that allogeneic transplantation can be effective in about half of patients, but the problem with this approach has been the complications of long-term survival and graft-versus-host disease. 
So where are things going at the present time? Uh, TP53 mutation, as Dr. Gopal has pointed out, has been associated with a poor prognosis in patients treated with conventional therapy, including transplantation, and a clinical trial is strongly recommended. There are different directions that you can look and go. Uh, overall, internationally, uh, the approach appears to be that once a patient has relapsed from initial therapies, then BTK inhibitors are the next approach. If not tolerant to one, but appearing to respond, then switching is a very reasonable approach next. If there's been progression, then if CAR-T eligible, then go to a CAR-T cell. If not eligible, then regimens such as lenalidomide rituximab or bendamustine rituximab. And again, if patients uh, are, have, have those high-risk features, then either a clinical trial or potentially a CAR T-cell approach. If it's not confusing enough what I've already presented and talked about, there are, there are emerging therapies in mantle cell lymphoma. There are trials in five bite antibody trials, and I won't go through the names of those trials or the names of those drugs, either single agent or in combination. There are antibody drug conjugate trials going on, again, at least three of those right now. There are CAR T-cell therapy trials going on, uh, uh, now adding a brutinib to one of those uh, approaches. And there are other targeted approaches that are ongoing. So as uh, Dr. Gopal has talked about, there are at least 3,000 patients to date in un who are in clinical trials internationally, and we're awaiting the readouts to these trials and patients treated up front. There are phenomenal genomic studies on the tumor and microenvironment, which I believe are going to alter the future. And in summary, this last decade it just provides remarkable hope for patients with mantle cell lymphoma and opportunities to live long-term without the complications of long-term survival. I now have patients who have lived over 13 years after relapsed after a stem cell transplant. They've gone on some of these other therapeutic approaches, but this results in really tremendous hope to me, and there is phenomenal national and international research which is ongoing. With regard to quality of life, we've been interested in this in our uh, SPORE program sponsored by our federal government. And the first observation that we published in December of 2018 uh, on 701 patients, we reported that quality of life at diagnosis was really important. Uh, uh, in the initial presentation, if quality of life was good, patients had improved overall survival and event-free survival in, in multiple lymphomas, including mantle cell lymphoma. But then the real question is, what can you do to potentially improve your quality of life? Again, in this same uh, mechanism, the Molecular Epidemiology Research Cohort and our SPORE grant, uh, 3,060 patients were followed, and uh, 1,371 had a third follow-up. And we then looked at a number of things, and interestingly, at three years, there was a significant improvement in overall survival, lymphoma-specific survival, and event-free survival in all histologies who met or exceeded national recommended standards for age and sex with regard to physical activity recommendations, pre-diagnosis, and in those patients who had a change that is increased their physical activity. So I strongly encourage patients to and, and ask those these questions when I see them initially and in follow-up. The third report was on change in health behaviors, physical activity, alcohol, and smoking in 2,805 patients. And smoking at the time of diagnosis and at three years was associated with a lower quality of life, so I strongly encourage patients to discontinue smoking. Again, the physical activity uh, uh, observations were confirmed. And so... In, with regard to uh, uh, telehealth, uh, I think it's, as Dr. Gopal alluded to, it's been a real moving target. Uh, there were trends that 
in the industry, and there's many many uh, businesses who are interested in this particular topic and approach. Uh, the pandemic opened it up. It's now closing down a little more, and I don't quite understand where it's going. But I would like to make just a couple of points about it. Um, the From some general practical points, uh, it's important to realize, and this isn't quite the case it used to be, but both patients and physicians are uncomfortable seeing themselves on the screen. Uh, I kind of joke about it sometimes when we start, uh, and uh, some of us spend a significant time in our days in Zoom and other calls, uh, so we're more used to it. Um, it's very imperative to be on time. Ten minutes late and the consult may be canceled. I know that many of us are late coming in to see you in the office, but uh, in telehealth, you're on time. Thirdly, be yourself. When I see patients, the first thing that I want to do, do is, is see someone for the 30 to 60 seconds, and that can tell me more about you than 30 minutes of digging through your chart. In lymphoma, it, it, it's not an in, 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 in indefinite plan to follow up because a physical exam uh, can find new lymph nodes, and, and many of us are finding this to be a little more complicated than we thought with that regard. What about guidelines to prepare? Number one, have your electronic device set up in a comfortable environment where you might also be able to get a, your paper records or your your, your binder to, to write notes. Uh, secondly, don't be afraid of making mistakes. Uh, no one's really an expert. I have a quote above my computer in my office by Niels Bohr, who was a very famous physicist, who stated, quote, an expert is a man who made all the mistakes which can be made in a very narrow field, unquote. And uh, I get that feeling intermittently myself when things aren't quite going right in our electronic environments. Thirdly, it is helpful if you're not using this technology regularly to have someone with you, such as a spouse, one of your children, your neighbors, uh, that are more comfortable, uh, and, and they can help you uh, uh, get on and, uh, and if there are issues, navigate the, the issues. Fourthly, understand that some physicians and healthcare providers spend considerable time going over the medical records if they've not seen you before, but others do not, uh, and uh, so that, that can be very variable. Fifth, uh, physicians and health care providers may be going through your records on the computer while talking to you. Uh, I tend to be typing my notes while talking to you, so I'm sometimes making eye contact, sometimes not. In, in reality, it's just like being in the office. Lastly, and most importantly, prepare notes and questions ahead of time. Uh, you likely are not going to remember your questions or comments during the visit without these. I've learned over the past 35 years through being involved with patients with phenomenally different backgrounds and cultures that there aren't many exceptions to this particular rule. So in in summary, uh, in, in mantle cell lymphoma has been a fascinating area, and there's so much going on and so many different options, and the options are going to get more complicated. And so it's very difficult to read about. It's very difficult to work through, but make sure that you are comfortable with the physician that you're seeing. Make sure that you have access to uh, websites such as the uh, Lymphoma Research Foundation, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, Cancer Care, and others to help you get a background and then be better prepared for meeting with your physician and your healthcare team. So with that, I want to thank you for your attention and I look forward to your questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Haberman. That was just a wonderful presentation and really a, a very honest one in the sense that that the quote above your desk is just a wonderful one because I think it applies to so many and so keeping that in mind, it's, it's good to be prepared when one meets with one's physician on telehealth telemedicine to have that the kind of list that you suggested so that one is as prepared as possible for that. 
Thank you. I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well. Um, and um, I would just like to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to um, move on. But I just wanted to um, give you a snapshot of the services we offer. And indeed, um, Dr. Happerman also mentioned um, um, both the Leukemia Lymphoma Society and Lymphoma Research Foundation. And at the end of this program, or probably tomorrow, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation. And in there is evaluation of the program. Of course, we'd like you to fill that out. But also, it will include any reference we made to any resource that we think would be helpful to you. And you'll get both the um, name of the organization, its website, and its toll-free number as well. So that for those of you who are in the United States, want to use the toll-free number. For those internationally, want to go to the website, or, or people may, may want to go to the website anyway, um, you have choices here. Um, so Cancer Care is a national um, organization, a nonprofit, and we provide services to people throughout the United States. Um, and um, however, if someone does live in another country and does um, email a question to our website, one of our oncology social workers will certainly address the question, help the person to get the resource that they need. And because we do have a, a fairly large database of places that you can access information and, and, this, and the services or care that you need. Um, in terms of the United States, um, so the services that we do offer are both practical and financial assistance, and we do have a co-payment assistance program, as does the Lymphoma Research Foundation and as does the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. So there are many places where you can get financial assistance with actually the cost of your treatment itself. And um, at Cancer Care, we also assist with transportation to treatment um, and child care, home care, so many other services. But these other organizations do the same as well. And you can go to more than one to get your assistance. You know, kind of, in other words, because there's just never enough for all of you. Um, all of you have tremendous need um, about these costs. Um, also, when you call our 800 number, um, our Hope Line, um, you'll, the person who picks up the phone will be an oncology social worker. And usually people start by asking a question or having a concern. And then the social worker will address that concern and then go over all the other services we offer. And people often will take advantage of the other services as well. So that's sort of a given that that basically um, we wouldn't just, we'll give you the help that you're requesting and then let you know there are other, other things we can help you with this too. So what are those other services? So um, we do offer support to people um, um, on a regular basis to people um, throughout the United States. We also um, do offer online support groups, which people really like because those groups do not happen in real time, but you can post any time of the day or night. And, um, and then the oncology social worker will be moderating that group. And, um, and those are for many different types of cancers, including mantle cell, lymphoma, and also for people of all different um, life, uh, where they are in their lifestyles. So you have for young adults, older adults, middle-aged adults, caregivers, um, partners. So the groups are also broken down into um, just different needs as well. So that, and you can be in more than one group if you wish. Um, we also have what we call coping circles, which are smaller groups in which people address a particular concern, a question, um, that they're um, dealing with uh, as a group with, that's moderated by an oncology social worker. Um, in addition to that, we do also offer um, case management services. And what that is, is many people, for example, have issues around food insecurity, just no money, not enough money for food or not enough money for rent or, or mortgage payments. Or, you know, and so basically um, what our case management staff will do is they will virtually take you um, to a, a place that will be able to meet that need, and they'll stay with you until that need is met. If that place doesn't meet the need, then they'll take you to another place until your needs are met as they need to be, because these are big issues that people have. And again, there may be, uh, may be something right in your own city or in your region or national program or a combination of all of those. Um, we also do um, offer these workshops, and we also do provide publications. And I have to say that both the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Leukemia Lymphoma Society also do the same. They do have both um, uh, publications um, that they, uh, they put out. They also do programs like this. And they also um, do have um, uh, a number of other resources for you as well. So that's in a specific to, um, to 
specific to your type of um, mantle cell lymphoma. So with that being said, before we go on to the Q&A, and I see questions are already coming in, but we're not moving to that yet, I just have a few questions to ask you before we go into the Q&A so, um, for our speakers. So get your questions ready, and I'm going to start with our first question. And again, um, these are for people who've, uh, who are live streaming the program um, who actually will be able to see the questions as I read them and will be able to rate their answer to them. And we appreciate your participating in this because it helps us to tailor the programs to best meet your needs. So as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of emerging treatment approaches for mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of treatment options for newly diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of treatment options for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now we just have two questions left. Um, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to use their tips and suggestions to manage treatment side effects, discomfort, and quality of life concerns of mantle cell lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this is the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials for mantle cell lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I just want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. Again, as we plan programs for 2022, your feedback to us is really important so the programs best meet your needs. And now we're going, to, we're going to ask Sadai to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to actually take as many of your questions as possible. And um, I'm going to ask uh, Sadai if she could um, explain to you how to queue up and ask questions. Sadai. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then the number one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered, you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. So um, thank you. And we have an online question from one of our participants. I'm going to give this question to Dr. Um, Gopal. I was diagnosed with M mental cell M MCL stage four a few months ago. I was told it's an indolent lymphoma. I've always, I'm always tired and sweating a lot during the day and sometimes at night. My doctor says it's not from lymphoma. What are your thoughts? And again, I'm going to ask Dr. Gopal to address this in a general way um, because he obviously doesn't have access to your entire medical records and things like that. So it's really just to give you some thoughts that he might want to share with you. So I'm going to ask Dr. Gopal if you could address this again in a general way. Thank you. Thank you for this question. And I think, you know, this really reflects one of the tough uh, situations to sort out uh, what symptoms, what's causing symptoms. So, I, you know, this is something that we face many times in the clinic with mantle cell lymphoma as well as more commonly with indolent uh, lymphomas, uh, other indolent lymphomas. Uh, so, it is, uh, we, it's certainly known that these things like sweats and fevers and fatigue can be associated with lymphoma, but there are also many things that can cause that. And this is really important uh, for, uh, to maintain an open dialogue with your provider and really try to sort through these things uh, as to what might be other causes. And then even if there is a thought that this might be related to the underlying lymphoma, uh, one has to be certain that the treatment for the lymphoma is not going to cause more symptoms than 
the symptoms that one is experiencing that, that might or might not be due to the lymphoma. So this is a really common scenario uh, and a tough, tough thing often to, to sort out. So obviously I'm not going to be able to give a specific answer other than acknowledging that this is something that uh, you need to just maintain that communication with your provider uh, as you try to sort this out. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and a question for Dr. Haberman. Um, what eligibility is required for CAR T cell therapy? In general, you need to fail two therapies to then go to CAR T cell therapy. Um, and I think that's been reasonably consistent. I'll ask Dr. Gopal about that and what his experiences have been, but that's uh, uh, these have been the uh, directions, and they're determined by third-party carriers. Yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, in general, I think the label for uh, the uh, brexicaptogene uh, uh, for mantle cell lymphoma, I believe, is just one prior line. However, the uh, NCCN guidelines typically say folks must have had or should have had a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Uh, before uh, one goes to CAR T cells. So that often will mean that they've had two prior therapies, um, but the uh, BTK inhibitor can be used kind of as a, uh, a bridge to CAR T cell uh, if, if that's deemed the appropriate strategy by the treating uh, team. Um, but yes, it's often, this is uh, determined by the insurance uh, uh, payers. And I just uh, from the NCCN guideline perspective, I actually have the most recent guideline that just came out, and I'm on the committee, and that's why I answered it that way, <laughs> because that's <laughs> at least in my experience, uh, and I think from regulatory bodies internationally, it's kind of uh, uh, it's it's interesting how much weight the NCCN has been able to uh, have uh, after refining it. These guidelines have become far more, far improved. Uh, I've been on, only been on the committee since 2015, but um, that's uh, uh, you know, just another comment to uh, Dr. Gopal's. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and um, a question um, for um, Dr. Haberman. Is there a reason to stop rituximab maintenance after two years if remission continues under maintenance? It's, I've been around this question since uh, 1994 of rituximab maintenance in lymphomas. Um, so, uh, and it's now far more complicated in the COVID-19 pandemic because rituximab blunts the formation of neutralizing antibodies to COVID-19. And so never before in my career have I asked myself the questions about who, who I treat with rituximab overall. And I had the privilege of chairing the North American RCHOP trial back in the 1990s and then was on the FDA-approved trial in the United States for rituximab and follicular lymphoma. And um, in my judgment, um, um, there, I think there are two different... Uh, one trial went three years and another trial went two years in the maintenance strategy of uh, in, uh, in mantle cell. Uh, uh, but I, I'd, going beyond that and indefinitely, um, I don't recommend that in follicular lymphoma. We tried that in the resort trial, and there was no benefit uh, in a randomized study there to, to treat indefinitely. Thank you. Um, and um question for Dr. Gopal. What additional questions should a patient ask who has been told he has P53 mutation or testing to request by way of getting more details about the graduation of mutation other than other than you have it or you don't have it, what additional information is useful to have? 
Well, you know, I think the, the question in these settings, if someone has uh, a TP53 mutant or P53 overexpressing uh, mantle cell lymphoma is how is this going to impact, how would one uh, approach the situation differently? And I think as Dr. Haberman mentioned, you know, these are really the situations where we want to uh, encourage consideration of a clinical trial. Um, I think the other, the general approach, I think we're all kind of learning uh, as we, uh, over the years, as data come in and our experience increases about uh, how to approach these uh, tough situations, but, and I would be very curious to hear what uh, Dr. Haberman has to say, these situations we often expect that we're going to need to move to CAR T-cell to cellular therapy sooner rather than later, but we're also limited in our ability to do that because we wouldn't, we can't do that as the first therapy, obviously. Uh, so I think the, the, my general strategy is that we watch uh, for uh, therapies, treatment options not being effective much more closely uh, in, uh, outside of a clinical trial, certainly uh, the folks that have these kind of mutations and have a very low threshold to quickly change gears and move towards CAR T-cell therapy. Um, but I think the important question is how do we approach it differently, and I think that's – and what clinical trials may be available uh, to, to pose to your uh, treating physician. I would, I would be curious what you have to say, what your thoughts are, uh, Dr. Haberman. Mine are very – ours are very similar as a team. I think to try to get the CAR-T therapy approach early, um, I don't think – we have all the answers to that approach and what and what the data really looks like, but that is from an intellectual and biologic approach uh, makes the most sense. I think um, you know some of us were hopeful that a venetoclax and combination therapeutic approach might be uh, effective, uh, and that data isn't uh, as exciting. At least some of it. I think um, other approaches are the bite antibodies if those opportunities um, exist. And I think the the other point about this is that um, patients can acquire this over time. So it isn't just at, at the initial presentation, but then at relapse, uh, it may not have been identified. And uh, I'm of the belief that I, when we didn't know about this, that some of the patients that, that, that you know, lived 15, 17 years after, after an initial diagnosis, that, that this came about over time. So it, it, it can happen at different points, and, and I'm not aware of anyone that has the genuine answer to the optimal therapeutic approach to this question um, internationally. Uh, you talk to Dr. Martin Dreiling in the Mantle Cell Lymphoma uh, uh, European Network and others, uh, they're just, this is a very complicated problem right now. Then uh, I think, you know, the neat thing is, is that we have the, bio, the, the tools to identify these different observations in the biology of the disease, so the hope is that we can then develop an approach to TP53 mutations. And TP53 mutations just don't exist in mantle cell lymphoma. And so other other diseases are looking at this very hard. Drug companies are very interested in this topic. And so I'm very hopeful that in the reasonably near future we're going to have uh, some real answers to this question and problem. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Um... We certainly have um, experts on this call. I'm really very grateful to both um, Dr. Gopal and Dr. Hopperman. It's wonderful to having you. Um, another question. Um, these are really great questions um, for Dr. Haberman. Is it advisable to use multiple RICE treatments following a relapse of MCL? Uh, could you, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Um, is it advisable kind of to use multiple RICE, R-I-C-E, treatments following oh, a relapse of rice. mental cell? Um, so rice chemotherapy, um, uh, that came out of Memorial Sloan Kettering Group, and I'll never forget calling the 
principal investigator and first author of that trial was published. And we've had a very similar experience that I try to limit rice to three treatments and not more. The toxicities start to increase when you go beyond three. And so I'm. that's been a... Uh, uh, when I talked to Craig Moskowitz about that about 15, 10, 15 years ago, or t- I can't remember, uh, but that, that's been my approach. Excellent. Okay, thank you. Um, and for Dr. Gopal, what does reciprocal translocation between gene loci CC, NDI, and IGH and 67% of nuclei involved mean? Again, I, so, way. <laughs> so this is, this is I think this is re- reading from a pathology report. Um, so generally, this is one of the uh, hallmarks of uh, mantle cell lymphoma is this 1114 translocation, uh, which leads to overexpression of the uh, cyclin D1 uh, gene. Um, it's probably not the the whole story in mantle cell lymphoma, but it's it's one of the markers that we use to make the diagnosis. So that's basically just uh, a description of that uh, translocation of the part of the chromosome breaking off and, and moving to another another chromosome. And this will be our last question um, for Dr. Haberman. Is there any difference in treatment recommendations for MCL negative CD5 or considerations? <laughs> It's a complicated question because um, it will be interesting interesting to hear Dr. Gopal's response to this. When I am confronted with CD5 negative lymphoproliferative disorders in this histology and different histologies, I actually, if, if, if even if it's our own group, we have 15 pathologists who do bone marrow and lymph nodes and lymphomas here and what I uh, what I do is talk with them on the phone and make sure we're we really are comfortable with the diagnosis so then I'm looking for other supportive information uh, about how we arrived at the diagnosis so the cytogenetics the TP53 SOX-11, the other things that Dr. Gopal mentioned. Um, And I guess I'll defer back to him to hear his response. This is a hard question, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this just reflects that uh, nature doesn't uh, fit into nice little boxes that I think humans like to put everything into. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get a situation where there are a couple of different possible diagnoses, and as you said, you know, is it is it behaving like a mantle cell lymphoma? If, if mantle cell is one of the options, is it behaving that way, uh, or is it behaving like a a different an indolent B cell lymphoma, marginal zone, or something else? I mean, so you basically take the totality of the information. I think we all do this: uh, the clinical presentation, the pathologic information. Um, and patients' preferences and, and other medical issues and try to make a decision about the right approach. I think oftentimes we will, when if it's a, the tiebreaker would be often to err on the side of the uh, more aggressive or higher risk possible diagnosis uh, in terms of treatment options, but uh, it doesn't, things don't always fit into a nice, uh, a nice box. Uh, that's that's a very neat answer and more eloquent than mine. I would just add that I've been very involved in marginal zone lymphoma internationally since chairing a meeting for the LRF in 2019, and we have a number of publications. I, I just would like to add, because the word indolent has come up in this discussion with mantle cell, and, and I've always had a, a hard time wanting to define mantle cell lymphoma as an, quote, indolent lymphoma. And our, as, as classification schemes have matured, and once we went to the WHO type of format where they're 
at least 106 kinds of lymphoma if you count different things and now with the biology more um, these 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 get to be in in and has mentioned the the how we define something there 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 is such an i believe there is such an entity but one has to be careful to make sure that this has been carefully reviewed and probably a second opinion. I'm trying to comment on second opinions. I thought that would be what just to um, say a bit about that. I know a lot of people sometimes may not consider that and are concerned about offending a doctor by taking a second opinion. If you could just comment on that. A lot. Well, I think the two of us are in, are in institutions which we, we will have a bias supporting um, second opinions. My take on the whole thing: if you if you look at the diagnosis of lymphoma, lymphoma represents five percent of malignance of all cancers. And then if you take something like mantle cell lymphoma, at least in a paper we had come out looking at the National Cancer Database of almost six hundred thousand patients, eight eight percent of those were mantle cell, and Mantle cell can be sometimes a pretty straightforward diagnosis, but it's now with the the complexity of management, um, it is very reasonable uh, to attempt to have a second opinion, um, and the op the options uh, can open up significantly. This would also depend upon where you live, um, what center you were seen initially. Um, I'm not a believer that patients should be seen in five different institutions before they get treated. Um, but I think that in in these kinds of disorders, um, to be at an inst to see someone with experience in the disease in an institution that has significant experience can be very important and very meaningful in an approach and in uh, uh, different opportunities and clinical trials and so forth. Yeah, I, I would uh, concur with that. I think I, you know, we, I probably have the same bias, but I, you know, I just to emphasize that most, it's, it's a really hard job to be a, a general hematologist oncologist. The amount of knowledge uh, required to, to practice is is, tr is just exponentially increasing, and I think in these kind of rare diseases, second opinions are completely reasonable. But they can be in different formats. I mean, they don't have to necessarily be a go to an academic center and go to the clinic. Most uh, community docs in the U.S. have an academic referral center that they work with, and sometimes it can just be an informal curbside consult. I'm sure Dr. Haberman and I, but we both have long lists of docs who call us all the time uh, with curbside questions, and we're we're typically very happy to to help out and just make sure that uh, folks are on the right track. So, I mean, there's an informal second opinion that you could ask your doc uh, to, to make on your behalf, or they may have made behind the scenes on your behalf, uh, or they're all the way to a formal travel to a uh, academic referral center uh, and have the formal second opinion, including uh, hematopathology review. The other thing that many patients don't know about is that it is a very common practice to have a second pathology review overall, um, at least in my experience. And I have a database that I've led here that has over 40,000 patients, and it's, we've never really looked at that number, but it um, it's very common. And that is good. That's a very good point. That's excellent. I have to say, this is we've done these programs before, but this, I think, has been the most extraordinary one we've ever done. And I want to thank both Dr. Gopal and Dr. Haberman for their superb presentations. I also want to thank our participants for their asking such great questions. Um, um, and, and we hope that this um, has been helpful to all of you. Um, I do want to make a few comments, because I know that we didn't get to all the questions, because we have a lot more questions than we said this would be an hour program. And we've gone over a few minutes, so I just want to kind of try to wrap it up. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question that you didn't get to ask, and for those of you who've been listening and have all kinds of questions you may want to ask, please take all the information you've learned back to your treating healthcare team. I think uh, speakers have said that they know you the best, 
and discuss with them. Ask your questions again of them. If you from this program today, I hope you've learned that all questions are wonderful that you ask, and they're important, and um, and they're important because it's you, and you need to have the answers to the questions you know that you have. That's very important. Also, um, the most the other thing is um, I would not want anyone to leave this program feeling up there alone in coping with mental cell lymphoma or any type of lymphoma or cancer. I want you to now know that you're part of a really large community of support, both from your healthcare team, which consists of your physician, oncology nurse, oncology social worker, financial specialist, patient navigators, a host of people who can help with different concerns that you may have. You also have, today we've talked about um, the Lymphoma Research Foundation, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, and Cancer Care, and we will be giving you um, a listing of all of those resources we've mentioned and even some we didn't mention today that you can actually use to access information from. That's, that's really important as well. So it is, it is normal to feel alone sometimes, but I want you to know that there are places that you can call. There are some places that are open 24 hours a day to call. Um, and also for your healthcare team, always find out if there is something that happens after hours or on weekends or holidays, who are the covering people, so who you can contact if you have a burning question or concern or have a need or, or, or else need to, um, who, who you contact, how you handle any situation that you're concerned about. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.